Would you uh, take the Word of God with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 22. Acts and uh, chapter 22. We have uh, been uh, studying through the book of Acts. Now one of the reasons why I uh, typically most of the time will take a book and preach through a book is because uh, there is a responsibility on my part to teach and to preach the whole counsel of God. So I'm not trying to avoid anything. That's one of the reasons. But also one of the reasons is we get a, a better understanding on individual verses when we have a good context of the whole, the context of a book. Now the book of Acts is um, certainly there is historical significance to it because it's the record of the first century churches and it's beneficial for us. But it's not just a record of what went on. It's a record that God wants us to have. As I mentioned here, this is not everything that happened in the first century churches, but it is everything that God wants us to know happened. Now we come here to the end of Acts, and the remainder of the book of Acts, really from chapter 21 on through the end of the chapter, is focused on Paul and really his the, the close of his ministry in the sense now it would last for many years, but it's the close in the sense that Paul is not able to go, along, go out and about through Asia and uh, Macedonia and Achaia and preach the gospel and plant churches. He is restricted by bonds, his bonds. He's going to be a prisoner of Rome from this time on through the remainder of the book. Uh, but we learn some things here. We ask ourselves, why is this here for us? Because it's really not the activities of the church as much as it is the activities of Paul and the close of his ministry. Now, we know that there is great benefit in what happens here. Why? Because from then on, he's going to write many of the New Testament epistles that we have today as a prisoner, and we're thankful for that. Uh, but also, we, we get a benefit on the level that Paul here, we see him more as a, let me put it, as a believer than a preacher. Now, he's no doubt going to give his testimony, but the intent in his behavior is not to start a church, as has been so far. It's really to, it's a statement of why he is here. Something has happened to him. And that's the reason why those things that he is dealing with here in those pages are happening to him, uh, because God has changed his life. That is why he's here. As we will see here by the end of uh, the sermon this morning, I want us to look at this passage when Paul writes to the believers at Philippi. He says, I would have you understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And so everything we read, we have to keep this in mind. When Paul looks back, he says, This has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. But we might come to chapter 22 and we might look at Paul's, we would say, predicament as a prisoner now. And we might say, well, this is happening because of the Jews. And we might say, rightly, there's an argument we say, well, this, yes, indeed, is happening because of the Jews and what they're doing to Paul. Or we might have a different perspective and might say that this is happening because in large part of what has happened to Paul. And what I mean by what has happened is because of God's calling on his life. Because he's a Christian. That's two different perspectives. Paul's predicament, is it because of the Jews? Or is it because of God? 
You see, when we examine our lives, we may look at our lives and we may be in sometimes predicaments. And there may be a sense that a thief is in jail. He is in that predicament because of what he brought on himself. But then there's also things that happen and things where we may be in a predicament in life and it may not be because of what we've done. But it could be in part because of what God has done in our lives. So how should we think about those things? The message I want to preach this morning, we're going to read here, but let me give you the title before I read and then we'll do some preaching. Here I stand on the other side. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Acts 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 21. Paul has an opportunity to share his testimony with a mob, with a mob. And in this testimony, by the way, Paul, there's three times that Paul gives his testimony. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Now we might think, well, wait a minute. We already got his testimony. We already know what it looks like. And we know it's going to be delivered then in Acts 26. Why do we have to have another mention of Paul's testimony? Because God gives it to us in His Word. Why would God give it to us three times? Why do we need to go over those same details over and over again? Because I think God wants us to relive what happened to Saul so that we could receive a benefit from it. So notice Acts 22.1. The Bible says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, now this city is referring to Jerusalem, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there, bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was Come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go unto Damascus, and there shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, Receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked up upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. 
And now, now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, and saw him saying unto me, Make haste, and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I am imprisoned and beat in every synagogue, them that believe on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Now this is where he's going to be interrupted because the mob is going to lift up their voice and cry against him while they're going to hear the word Gentile. You remember what this conflict is about? They accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was not permitted at the time. Now he didn't. They perceived that he did. They thought that he did. It was not true. But that's why the uproar. And so he's given a testimony. As soon as he says Gentiles, then the uproar begins and they start shouting again. But here Paul has an opportunity to give his testimony on the other side. He was a persecutor. Now he is on the other side being persecuted. So I'd like to preach on what Paul said. Here I stand on the other side. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. This morning for your word, we pray that we would be instructed, that your spirit would um, convict us if we need convicting, and that it would encourage us if we need encouraging. We know that your spirit is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that we're grateful that the spirit of God can minister to all of our hearts individually in different ways. You're a great God who deeply cares for us, and for that we're grateful. May your spirit have uh, free course to do the work that it desire to do that you desire to do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we looked at um, the Book of Acts, we certainly can retrace everything that's happened in the Book of Acts. I won't, for sake of time, but uh, Paul, if you would, gives a summary here in Acts chapter uh, twenty-two and. Uh, we know that the circumstances of this is he had been in the temple, and remember they had dragged Paul out of the temple. And we know that they were beating Paul. The beating was interrupted. We know that the desire, as we saw last week, the desire was to kill Paul. That was their desire, and we know that there was a, an intervention. We would say a Roman intervention. I would say a divine intervention. That God was not done with Paul. And so the Romans kind of break up uh, the fight and they, there's all these accusations against Paul and so the, the, the chief captain doesn't know what to do so he binds Paul and it seems what we read last time that they thought that he had been the Egyptian that was stirring things up that had led an uproar in Jerusalem and so they thought that that was the man and when he spoke Greek they realized, oh that's not that Egyptian. And so as they're making their way up to the castle which is the prison, they uh, Paul interrupts the chief captain and he says, Hey, can I, can I have a word? Can I speak to them? Can you allow me to have an audience with them? And he allows that. And we're grateful that he allows that. And so here's the opportunity where Paul has, is standing before a raging mob. People who had been beating him in order to kill him. What do you say to that crowd? I hate you. <laughs> uh, that's the flesh, right? What are you doing? 
You've lost your minds. No, Paul says, let me share with you what's happened to me. Let me tell you where I've come from, what I used to be. Let me tell you about what happened to me in the midst of what I used to be. And from that moment on, let me share with you what I've been able to do for God. That's what he shares. And he takes a stand here on the other side, if you would, and he is able to take a stand for God. As I mentioned, when we think about our lives, there may be time as we think about maybe the time that we were saved, that there might have been a time when maybe we got saved later in life and our family members knew our lives before when we were not Christians. And they observe a time when we became Christians and then they look past that and things have changed since they've been Christians. And sometimes, often, that can cause a conflict in the life of a family where they say, well, what has happened to you? And they are disturbed. And sometimes you can uh, be put in a predicament simply because of what has happened to you. And sometimes we may look at that and we may look down on the family and say, well, why are they not accepting me? And we may blame them. Or we may even say, well, uh, maybe that God is to blame for what has happened to me or for this predicament that I'm in. And often if we're not careful, we may become discouraged and we may lose sight of what has happened to us and we may become discouraged and defeated. But that's not what Paul does here. In this predicament, he does those three things. He remembers who he was. He remembers what happened to him. And he remembers how he's arrived at this place where he is right now. I want to look at, first of all, we see a remembrance of who he was. Really, the first five verses, Paul describes his life before he was saved. Before he knew the Lord. And as a matter of fact, what the Jews are doing to him, he's quite familiar with because he used to do exactly what they did. He was involved with the exact same thing. And so if anybody would to, was to understand what they're involved in, Paul could understand what they're involved in. But as he remembers what he was, he's, he's talking primarily to a crowd of, of Jews who had been accusing him, who had been beating him, beating him who had uh, uh, levied false accusation against him. And here's the things that he remembers. Notice, first of all, he, he, he remembers his uh, ethnic ancestry as a Hebrew. He, that's what he's telling to the Jews in verse 1 and 2. He says, men, brethren and fathers. Uh, brethren means that uh, Paul referred to them as brethren according to the flesh. Uh, you see, Paul was born a Jew, and so uh, ethnically he was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, circumcised, and, and do all those things that pertain to the Hebrew. And so he addresses them, and he says, look, I'm a, I have an ethnic ancestry as a, as a Hebrew. He says, here, ye my defense which I make unto you now. And the Bible says in verse 2 that he was speaking in the Hebrew tongue. Now, no doubt many of the people that had gathered from around the world that had come at Jerusalem for that time, no doubt many of them spoke Greek. Paul himself spoke Greek. The chief captain was impressed. He thought that he was an Egyptian, so when he spoke Greek, he was in shock. And yet here he begins to speak in Hebrew, which would appeal to the ears of the Jews because the Romans now, they may probably have known some of the Hebrew for being in Jerusalem. 
But speaking to the Hebrews directly, that's something that pertained to Hebrews. And so he describes and evidences his ethnic ancestry. He says in verse 3, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia. And so he describes really his background, his uh, ethnic ancestry as a Hebrew. He's trying to appeal to them so that they might listen to them, that he's really their, his, their brethren according to the flesh. In this remembrance of who he was, he also describes his educational pedigree under Gamaliel. Verse 3, he says um, that, uh, yet brought up in this city. So, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I, notice, I came in this city and I was taught under the feet of Gamaliel. Now, during the time of Paul, there was no Jewish teacher that was as prominent and as respected as Gamaliel. Although Paul was from Tarsus of Cilicia, he, he did come to Jerusalem to uh, put himself under the most prestigious teacher of the, uh, of the Hebrews. And so the Jews would hear that and say, well, this is a man who, if you would, if you would think about it in terms of the flesh, would be uh, the cream of the crop. I mean, he, he had the opportunity to stand under the greatest teacher of that era. So he describes his ethnic ancestry, his educational pedigree. He even mentions his enthusiastic piety in verse 4. At the end of verse 3, he says, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. Now, by the way, that was the standard of Gamaliel. Those who were instructed under Gamaliel were instructed and they were known as this. They, those people who've learned under Gamaliel, they have been instructed according to the perfect manner of the law. They are the ones who know the law better than anybody else because of Gamaliel. He mentions here, And I was zealous toward God, and ye all as ye are this day. And so Paul says, Look, I, I understand your zeal. I, I, I had the same zeal concerning the things of God. I had the same zeal about the temple. I had the same zeal about the circumcision. I had the same zeal about the, the heritage that we have and the fact that we have the law and all those things. Verse 4, he says, And I persecuted this way unto death the way that he's what? Standing for today. Binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. This is how pious he was. He was involved in imprisoning men and women. The Bible says in, in chapter, uh, when after the, the, uh, the martyrdom of Stephen, he, uh, he was hauling men and women. from. He dragged people out of their houses. Brought them to Jerusalem to be tried and uh, to be imprisoned and to be beaten and to, and to be killed. And so he was uh, enthusiastic in his piety. He was a very zealous man, a very religious man, just like they are. But also he describes his enduring loyalty to the Sanhedrin in verse 5. He says, as also the high priest doth bear me witness. The high priest of the Sanhedrin council can bear witness of my zeal before and my educational pedigree, and all the estate of the elders, all those who are part of the Sanhedrin council, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them, which were uh, there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And so uh, you can ask the Sanhedrin council, they know my life, they know what I was like, they know everything about me, and they can bear witness. And so Paul, he first remembers who he was. By the way, now he's on the other side. He's on the other side. 
But it seems that he prefers the side he is on now than the side where he used to be. Now I want us to, to encourage us. Because if we're not careful, after we are saved and we become Christians and our lives change, we might find ourselves on the other side of many things. And sometimes being on the other side means that you face struggles that you didn't face before. The different types of struggles. And in those struggles you may look on the other side and say, it seemed that it was easy, easier to be on the other side. I'd rather be the persecuted than the persecutor. And so that's uh, Paul declaring who he was. And here he stands uh, on the other side and he remembers, he has a remembrance of, of who he was. And all those things that many of them would have been familiar with. But that's not where he stops. You see, because if he were to stop there, if there was nothing else, then at that moment he might have just said, well, I'll make a decision to go back to the other side. But he doesn't stop there. Why? Because not only does he remember who he was, but he also has a remembrance of what changed. What happened to Paul? What would uh, bring a man from the side of being a persecutor to bring him and to be on the side of the persecuted and to rather be on this side than the other side? That means that a profound change has to have happened in the life of Paul. Now, the account of Paul's conversion is really mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Acts 9 is the uh, direct account of his conversion. Here, Acts 22, and later before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. But let me, uh, let's follow the timeline of what happened to Paul. Now, I've already preached through that in Acts 9, and so some of those things might uh, come back, but God mentions it again, and so he wants us to revisit this. Uh, notice, first of all, as we think about the remembrance of what changed, first of all, uh, Paul describes that there was an interruption in his life. As a matter of fact, notice the timing in the testimony. He says in verse 6, and it came to pass. Now, remember in verse 5, he says, I was on my way with a letter from the Sanhedrin Council to go to Damascus and to basically imprison, bind men and women and to bring him to Jerusalem to be punished. That was my assignment. And on that very assignment, my life completely changed. My life was interrupted by, by, by Jesus Christ. Something has happened to me, and there was an interruption in my life. And by the way, that's always what salvation is. <laughs> salvation is an interruption in our lives. We have a direction in our lives, and we are uh, trekking a certain course, and we're going in that direction. And when Jesus Christ comes in, everything changes. There's a different course, and there's a, there's a different agenda. There's an interruption that happens Life, his life was completely changed. It was interrupted. What happened in this interruption? Notice he says, verse 6, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone round, uh, shone from heaven a great light round about me. So not only was there an interruption, but he describes here there was also a revelation. He mentions here in this revelation that there was uh, a great light round about me. Now, when we think about light, um, light throughout the Bible is used in various ways, but, but we know what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We read in uh, John chapter 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He goes on later and he says that uh, the light was rejected. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. And so when Jesus Christ comes, He is the, the light of the world and the darkness did not comprehend the light. The light is in the sense it, it shines, it reveals to man who Jesus Christ is. Man sat in darkness and Jesus Christ came and He dispelled the darkness and they saw the light but they rejected the light. Why? Because they love sin too much. They loved darkness rather than light. They saw Jesus Christ. They heard His claims, but they rejected Him. And so there's a sense that light shows not only who Jesus Christ is, but also light reproves the darkness. We know that light later in the book of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 mentions that light also has to do with judgment. That light exposes all the lies and all the, the hypocrisy and it shines a light and it says now because you are made manifest, judgment is coming. And so light has many purposes but we note here that the light is the light of Jesus Christ. That there was a, a revelation, no doubt a supernatural revelation. He says that this light shone round about me in verse 7. He says, I fell to the ground. And so we see not only there was an interruption, there was a revelation, but then we also see that there was a voice. There was a voice. He fell to the ground in verse 7, and notice he heard, I, and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? By the way, this is the wonderful thing about God. That not only that God interrupts our lives, that God reveals Himself, but when He reveals Himself, God speaks. And by the way, when God speaks, it is clear. And it may not be necessarily audible as in the case of Paul, but when God speaks, it is clear. And you know that God is speaking. And when He speaks here, what does He say? I note two things about the voice. First of all, we see that it was a voice of compassion, but it was also a voice of condemnation. Do you notice the compassionate part? He said, Saul, Saul... Now when you read throughout the Bible, this reflects the compassion of the Lord. You remember when Jesus Christ was with Martha, He said, Martha, Martha. When He saw Simon, He says, Simon, Simon. When He was weeping over Jerusalem, He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When He called out to Samuel, He said, Samuel, Samuel. That is an endearing way to call out to someone. When He said, Saul, Saul, thee, that's the voice of compassion for Saul. Saul has been a persecutor, but God speaks. And his, his voice is a voice of compassion. But it is also a voice of condemnation. Saul, Saul, notice, why persecutest thou me? What a direct condemnation. He didn't say, why persecutest thou the believers in Christ, the believers in me? He says, why persecutest thou me? You see, the opposition of, of, of Saul was the opposition against Jesus Christ. And by the way, the Bible is clear that all those who are outside of Christ are the enemies of God. But as His enemies, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin, sins. We who were God's enemies can be reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Why do you persecute me? A voice not only of compassion, but a voice of condemnation. So we see here, as he remembers, there was not only an interruption, there was a a revelation, and there was a a voice, but also there was an inquiry on the part of of Saul, because he he responds to this this revelation, he responds to this voice, and, and there's two questions. Notice those two questions. He mentions the first one, verse 8, And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? So those are the two questions. Who art thou, Lord, and what shall I do? Those are, by the way, two fundamental questions. By the way, answering the first question always precedes the second question. You're not going to ask, what will thou have me to do, unless you first answer the question, who are you, Lord? So the first question always precedes the second question. You see, salvation, we could say that the, the, the first question is a salvation question. Who is the Lord? Who is Jesus Christ? Who He is? What has He done? Who is He? Now it is interesting here that that question is, Who art thou, Lord? You see, He knew that the voice that was speaking to Him was the voice of the Lord. But He just didn't know that the Lord was Jesus Christ. And what was the answer? I am Jesus. You see, this is why we believe, by the way, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, there's plenty of scriptures to let us know, but the voice of the Lord is the voice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ speaks, and now he recognizes that's a salvation question. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, let me tell you who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, who was manifested, who was born of a woman, who became a man without ceasing to be God, for the express purpose of him dying on the cross and bearing my sins and your sins in his own body. And when he died, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us was nailed to the cross, and God took our sins out of the way. That's why He came to do. He came to be our Savior, to save us, to forgive us of our sins, to save us from an eternal damnation in hell. And if by faith we look to Jesus Christ and believe on His name, our sins are forgiven, and we have eternal life at that moment. That's who Jesus Christ is. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. The second question then is, which... uh, Uh, is always preceded by the first question, what will thou have me to do? You see, when you answer the first question, then the second question is logical. What do you want me to do, Lord? You see, salvation is an immediate escape from the judgment of hell, but salvation is also an open door to service. It is an immediate escape from hell, forever settled. But it is also at the same time an open door to service. We read this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and the not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we would say that the first question is a question of salvation. Who is the Lord? What has he done? Who is he? The second question, what will that have me to do? That's a surrender question. 
Salvation question first. Surrender question second. What will thou have me to do? Now, by the way, we asked what is surrender? What, what is meant here in that question? If you go back to Acts 9.6, he says, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Now, there's a lot here packed in this question, but let me summarize it for you. First of all, surrender is a recognition of authority. He said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? The title, Lord, is he who is supreme, he who is in authority. It is another way to say, Master. What will you have me to do? And so the meaning of surrender is that there is a recognition on our part uh, of authority, God's authority. But also we know that surrender is also a rectification of priority. Lord, what will thou have me to do? It's not, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's, Lord, what do you want me to do. And sometimes we may think of our lives as, well, I have my priorities and I want God to bless my priorities. That's not surrender. Surrender is, I want to find out what God's priorities are and I want to do them. That is surrender. See, too often though, we are concerned with, well, I got my agenda, I got my plan, I got the things that I want to do, and so God, would you bless me, please, bless me, bless my intentions and my purposes and my goals and my desires, and God, afterward, your, after all, your word says that uh, uh, you will give us the desires of our heart. You remember the first part of that verse though, it says, if ye delight in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our hearts. So we have to stop trying to get God to agree with our purposes and our goals and our desires. We have to say, Lord, what will thou help me to discover what you, God, want for my life? Not what I want you to do something for my life. And so that's surrender. It's surrender is a rectification of priority. By the way, that's what has happened to Saul. By the way, his direction completed. Right Now he's on the other side. He was on the persecutor side. Now he's going to be on the persecuted side when he asked the Lord, God, what do you want me to do? Whatever, is, is your, whatever your will is for my life, God, I will do that. Hey, Paul, it means you're going to be persecuted. I'll do it. By the way, that is exactly what Ananias told Paul. God told Ananias to tell Paul that he would suffer many things for the name of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Paul then stood up and did it. Why? Because surrender is a rectification of priority. It is a recognition of authority, a rectification of priority, but also surrender is a reckoning of personal responsibility. Lord, your authority over me. What will thou, your priorities... Have me to do. To do. So now he's basically saying, I have a personal responsibility to do what God wants me to do. You see, when true surrender happens, no other human being but ourselves is in consideration. What do you want me, me to do? You know, he didn't say, Lord, what will that have us to do? What do you want us to do collectively? 
No, no, it's a personal decision for Saul. What do you want me to do? And so we see that what happened to Saul, there was an interruption in his life, there was a, a revelation, there was a voice, and then there was an inquiry. But then there was also an ambassador. And it's interesting that Paul would mention this in Acts 22. Really from verse 12 to verse 16, he speaks in Acts 22 about how God sent Ananias to basically give him the God's plan. Uh, notice verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. By the way, that would be a big deal. Remember, Ananias was in Damascus. That means he would have been a recipient of the persecution of Saul. And now, remember, when God initially told Ananias to go to, to Saul, Ananias said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> isn't, isn't he the persecutor that came over here to imprison us? Yeah. We'll go to him. And when he comes in, he said, Brother Saul. Wow. Used to run away from him. And now he's dear to you. The same hour I looked up unto him, and he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, who was just one, that's Jesus Christ. He saw the just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. Wow, he says, you saw the Lord. That was the revelation. You heard his voice. He was calling out to you, and thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. You're going to be a witness. Now we know from there, now, why tarriest thou? Why are you waiting around, Saul? <laughs> Start serving God. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He'd already been saved, but he baptized as a, the evidence that your sins have been washed away. That's what baptism is a picture of. That we are buried together in the likeness of His death, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Our sin has been crucified. Our sins has been washed away and declared that publicly, calling on the name of the Lord. He did so. And it came to pass, by the way, everybody that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be baptized. It doesn't save you, but it's really the first step of obedience. It's a public identity with Jesus Christ. Or you tell the world, you want people to know. It says, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. My sins have been washed away. And I want to go through the waters of baptism because I want all the world to know what has happened to me. Those who would witness Paul's baptism, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say who witnessed Paul's baptism. If anybody, it was just Ananias. But at least Ananias was able to see a man who was a persecutor who would now would preach the gospel. His life's changed because of Christ. What a wonderful thing. And so this ambassador was faithful. And so we have the progression here. Notice, he remembered who he was. He remembered what changed, what happened to him. But then lastly, we see he remembered how he's arrived to the place where he is right now. Remember what was Paul's calling? It was to be a witness of the name of Jesus Christ. We could go to Acts, and we have some more details in Acts 9, when he says, Thou shalt suffer many things for the name of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Suffering was the lot of Saul. So understand, when he comes to the place where he is standing right now, there's a mob raging. They want to kill him. And he has an opportunity to speak to them, and he says, Look, I, I was just like you. I was lost. 
I was glorying in my ethnicity and, and, my, and my education and, and my zeal for God, but I was lost and undone. And then I met Jesus Christ, and He changed my life. He, I recognized who He was, and then I wanted to serve Him. I recognized that there was nothing else to do, and I professed Him. I, I, I declared by the baptism that God, uh, that Jesus Christ had changed my life. And here's why I'm here in this place today. Here's why I stand here today on the other side. Notice. He goes on through the verse 21. He describes, well, first in verse 17, he went to Jerusalem. We know, remember, he essayed to join himself to the to the uh, apostles there, and remember they, they were like, uh, no way, and Barnabas came alongside and brought him to the disciples. By the way, that's a, an encouragement for all of us. When you see somebody that comes in church, maybe somebody new or someone that recently been saved, just uh, coming around that person and encouraging them along the way is a big deal. That's what happened, by the way, to, to Saul. I think that Saul would not have been Paul without Ananias and Barnabas. Ananias went there and spoke to him and encouraged him, told him, this is what God wants you to do. And he did it. And then the, the disciples, they didn't want anything to do with Paul. And Barnabas came alongside him and he said, oh no, he is a brother. And that's something, by the way, we can all do. We can all be that Barnabas and that Ananias. Now we might be tempted at this point to say at this moment, Paul is standing here because of the Jews. Paul is in the predicament he is in because of what the Jews have done to him. Is that true? Well, we could say there is a responsibility that lays at their feet. But maybe we have to ask maybe the spiritual question and ask ourselves, why is he truly in this predicament? You see, we might also contend that Paul is in this predicament because he was called to be a light to the Gentiles, and to preach the gospel. Let me, let me ask you this. Now, we might, we might at that time blame the Jew, but we have to ask ourselves, if Paul did not respond to the command of Jesus Christ to go and preach the gospel and to be a light to the Gentiles, if he did not do that, would he be here at this place? He would not. The only reason he's there is because the Jews, who were from Asia, saw him in the temple, and they had heard him preach the gospel all throughout Asia. And so they saw him in the temple. They're upset. Why? Because he's been preaching the gospel everywhere he's been. The reason he is in the predicament is not because of the Jews. It's because he's preaching the gospel. If he had not, he would have just gone about his life. He would have walked through the temple and nobody would have said anything. The Jews, same Jews would have been there. But if he had divorced himself from the calling of God in his life, from preaching of the gospel, he would not have been in his predicament. And I think we face that same struggle today. You see, we, we don't desire predicaments. We don't want those. And sometimes because we don't want those predicaments, we try to avoid being obedient to the Lord. Let's avoid the predicament so let's not, not obey God, so that we don't put ourselves in the predicament. That's not what Paul chose. Paul chose to obey the Lord despite the predicament. Verse 21, And he said unto me, 
Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. He's tried to explain to them why he's been ministering to Gentiles. Well, that's where the mob is going to lose it here. And they're going to start shouting again against Paul. But here is how Paul arrived at this place. Here, here is Paul. Here I stand on the other side. Here I stand on the other side. Is that where you stand? On the other side. Could Paul have been what he was, remembered what happened to him, the encounter with Jesus Christ, but then said, well, I, I just, I don't want to suffer many things for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and been disobedient. He would not have been in that predicament. He chose what? Suffering with the people of God. That's what he chose. By the way, we have a pattern in the Bible of that happening. Turn with me to Hebrews. We'll look at one. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll be done. Notice Hebrews chapter 12. Or, uh, excuse me, chapter 11. Notice verse 24. Hebrews 11 verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He made a hard choice. That was a hard choice, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a hard choice. He chose affliction over pleasure. Affliction over pleasure. The only people that can make that choice are those who have been arrested by Jesus Christ. Verse 26, well, who is his mindset? Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than what? The treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And so, (laughs) the reproach, I will gladly bear the reproach of Christ. I will suffer gladly for the name of Christ than to have all the treasures in Egypt. That's my choice. Moses, don't you know that that means affliction and reproach? Yes, I know. But it's still better than the alternative. Why? Because I stand here on the other side. By the way, he had the choice to be on either side, didn't he? Be an Egyptian, be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Or choose rather not to. Here I stand on the other side. And Paul did the same thing. What happened to Paul? He met Jesus Christ. But he not only met Jesus Christ, but he chose that life that brought him to this predicament. If we choose the life that brings us to a difficulty and a predicament... That's a difficult thing. But if it brings us there, and that's the choice we've made, then that's the burden we must bear. But here's the truth. Many don't want to bear any burdens. Give me Jesus Christ, but don't ask anything of my life. Remember what Jesus said to His disciples? He said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross, and follow me. You want to follow the Lord? What did he tell the disciples? The world's going to hate you. They're not going to receive you. So they had a choice. Are we going to follow? Deny ourselves? Take up our cross? Bear burdens? The burden of what? Associating with Jesus Christ. Here's the testimony of a man, the Apostle Paul, who chose that. Everyone will face a predicament. But we ask ourselves this important question, what is the source of our predicament? Can I encourage you? If the source of your predicament is because you're following Jesus Christ, that's a good predicament. Now sometimes we put ourselves in a predicament, it's our own doing, it's our own fault, and we mess things up. We have to remediate things. But if we're in a predicament simply because of God's calling in our lives, let's rejoice in that predicament. Rejoice in that predicament. So, Pastor, how can we do that? I, <laughs> by God's grace, we are enabled to do that. And only a believer can understand how God ministers to us in those predicaments. We might argue that Paul's life from this moment on would have a greater impact in the long term, in the long term, from this moment on where he is right now than what he has done in the past. Why? Because we have the New Testament, a large part of the New Testament because of that imprisonment, because of his predicament that was brought on by following Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying to us is that affliction with God's people is better than the treasure's of Egypt. It's better than temporary sins. It's better than easy life. It's better every time.